Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of DevOps Diaries. I am excited to bring you this episode which I have just recorded with Julian Joseph. We're going to get a little bit technical today. We're going to jump into some of Julian's recommendations for source control branching, his take on effective sandbox strategy, and some of the simple yet surprising hidden challenges in Salesforce development that can be easily remedied. So if you are curious and if you're looking for a better way to release on the Salesforce platform, come along and listen to Julian and I as Julian dives in to some of those key things that might be hindering us and he can help solve with his background as a Salesforce DevOps and Salesforce quality engineer. Let's jump into it. Julian, hello. Welcome to the DevOps Diaries podcast. What a pleasure it is to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. You are absolutely welcome. I am super excited to have the opportunity to chat to you today, Julian, and bring your experience and your knowledge to the listener of DevOps Diaries. Um, given a given a little bit of an intro, so the listeners know what know what to expect. But um, I would love to hear in your words and for the listeners to hear in your words a little bit about who you are and a little bit about uh, the experience that you're going to bring to us today on the podcast. Yeah, happy to share. Yeah, so Julian Joseph, he, him. Um, I'm a Salesforce DevOps engineer with a background in Salesforce for about eight years now. Um, I've actually done a mixture of quality engineering, DevOps engineering, um, technical support. So been both customer-facing as well as more on the back end with development teams. But yeah, I've worked at a few Salesforce partners on the ISV side, as well as at salesforce.com slash .org, which is the nonprofit division within salesforce.com. Um, so I was there for a couple of years, most recently at a startup Salesforce partner called Agent Sync. Um, I'm actually currently in between roles, so looking for my next opportunity. Um, but yeah, just love Salesforce DevOps and love um, yeah, just getting more people excited about some of the things I've done in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think with that, with that intro, it's evident that why, why I'm excited to chat to you today and, uh, bring some of your experience to, to the listeners. Um, you mentioned the plethora of roles, but your job title is primarily now is Salesforce DevOps engineer. I think that's a really curious, curious thing for, for the listeners, a lot of roles and when I speak to folks in the ecosystem and the Salesforce teams, DevOps is seen as something that is done. And if you're an admin or a developer, you are part of a development process. Give us a little bit of insight about how DevOps came to be your specialty and the thing that you solely focus on in your role in the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, with a lot of my role changes, it's always been a bit of mixing in the new role, I'm interested in new, some of the new tasks and transitioning to it. And so that was the same with DevOps. Um, my most recent role before DevOps was quality engineer, Salesforce quality engineer. Um, and I was a quality architect for a bit as well, which basically just meant I was developing more of the plan. Um, and so that actually, I think, naturally led into DevOps um, through way of automation. So when you're testing, um, you always want to be testing in more efficient ways whenever possible. And um, one of the ways to make it more efficient is to add in automated tasks. And so you're automating that testing, 
don't know if you heard about UI testing um, or using some even like load or performance testing, which usually uses some level of automation. Um, those were the areas I was getting into and um, finding a new expertise in. And that actually just led me to keep asking that question of how do I get more efficient? How do I help my team in better ways? And that's where DevOps came into play. Um, so a lot of times when you are wanting to automate when those tests are run, you're thinking about ways to trigger them automatically by developers or by different um, actions that the development team is doing. Um, for example, whenever you make a change to the code, you probably want to run some level of testing. And so I was beginning to set that up on my team, um, thinking about when to trigger these tests. And that really led into, hey, there's a lot more that can be triggered even besides just the testing. Uh, for example, you can trigger things like um, reviews from other developers. Uh, you can trigger like information about whether or not the code you are writing is stylistically um, compliant with whatever you've decided as a team um, you want that code to look like. And so all, all these actions are just kind of like little automations that when you add them up together, it's basically the role of what a DevOps engineer does. And so I was beginning to assist my team with each of these little tasks. And at some point it just made sense, hey, this is my role. Um, I'm doing this on a day-to-day. -day. Why don't we make it official um, so I can dedicate more of the time, more of my time to this task. And that's how I made that transition. Wow. Um Tell us a little bit. So the quality, like the quality engineer or quality assurance as roles, I think is something that might be a little bit hidden for a lot of folks in the ecosystem. Um, generally, you see admin, developer, or architect as the main as the main kind of functions, I guess, of, if you like, as a, of the Salesforce team. From that experience as a, as a quality engineer and um, the the QA side of things, um, can you tell folks a little bit about what? The role of QA is in Salesforce development and Salesforce testing, and then we'll then we'll jump into some of the things that you mentioned there about your kind of transition into the automation and things like that. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Still very passionate about testing and quality engineers, and I think we need many more of them on development teams. <laughs> uh, but yeah, typically a quality engineer, I'd say they're taking a set of tasks that's often already being done by the team, but probably to varying degrees of success. And so whenever a developer is making a change or an admin is making a change, you need to make sure that that change is actually happening and that it's happening in the ways you're expecting and also that it's not impacting any other uh, related components or other uh, features or just other parts of your Salesforce org that you don't want to be negatively impacted by that change. And so, that action of verifying is usually called testing. And so often that testing is being done at least by either a developer or maybe the product owner on a team. Um, but a quality engineer, when they join that mix, they are really dedicated to that action of testing and verifying. Um, and usually since they are a dedicated role, they're probably going in steps deeper than the developer would go or than that product owner would go. Um, not just testing some of the obvious things, but exploring and thinking of new ways, new creative ways of, let's say, breaking that application and verifying that, um, ideally verifying that it's not going to break, but if it is, notifying the team so that they can be aware 
that that's happening. Um, and they're probably also at, adding in other perspectives to that, um, to that, to verify that scenario. And so, for example, it could be somebody um, who might have an accessibility need. That tester might be kind of representing that person using something like a screen reader um, for those who are vision impaired um, or checking for things like color um, inversion or color comparison compliance or making sure that double clicking um, for those who have motor skills, making sure that those different scenarios are not impacted. Um, and so basically representing those different people and testing for their situation. Um, it could also be, I mentioned load or performance testing. It could be taking testing to, you could say another level in terms of making sure that maybe not just that one action doesn't break, but if you perform that same action a thousand times or a hundred thousand times, um, that doesn't break or it doesn't slow down the system to a point where it's unusable. Um, so basically like thinking about more creative scenarios to do this level of verification and expanding upon it and being the dedicated person on that team to uh, be the expert on that. Yeah, absolutely. So far beyond just making sure that you have test classes, you run your needed tests, and then um, any, any, uh, any, you know, functional testing that goes on, does this work as, as it should? Yes. Okay. Take a box, but then taking that to, to that next level for, for multiple scenarios. And do you see that as, do, would you see that as a area that perhaps smaller teams are kind of missing out on when you think about, so you mentioned things that they're like accessibility and, um, being able to, being able to make sure that whoever is using your system and, and the platform can use it in the same way as, uh, as any other user that might have those kind of impairments or, or what have you. Do you feel that that might be something that hinders smaller businesses versus the enterprise is that typically would have more money to invest in a team and have testing of that level? Yeah, it, definitely testing roles, unfortunately, are often not thought of probably until a team gets to be a certain size. I have thankfully seen some smaller organizations even like think of testing early on. Um, there's a lot of benefit to having either a dedicated tester or at the very least really thinking strategically about the areas you're gonna be testing from day one. Um, a lot of times the features that you're building, they're gonna be much more expensive to change down the line to make them, let's say, accessibility right. compliant or make sure they perform at a higher level. Um, of course, you always have to have some trade-off between time and resources and making sure that you get something out, you get something available to people um, versus testing it like you can always think of new things to test and you can always take more time yeah. to test um but i think emphasizing it early on can really pay off and having somebody with that mindset um there's a lot of great tools out there that assist with things like accessibility testing um some even like chrome extensions or you know just built-in tools like i mentioned screen readers that's built into every computer to some degree um, and so there's ways that you can do testing um, even for what is thought of more complex or unique scenarios um, from day one, it doesn't have to be something that you think of down the line. But all in all, I would say I would always recommend for a small team to be thinking of that testing component as one of the main areas they do need to be investing in. Maybe it's not a full, fully dedicated position, but at the very least, 
making sure that they're considering it in their architecture and that their architects are thinking about it, developers are considering it um, from right when they start building their app. Yeah, yeah quality is not an afterthought. It's something that is baked into the process and how you develop things in the first place, of course. Of course. Um, yeah. yeah, so so if you, if you come back to a little bit of that, of that transition that you made uh, to more of a DevOps engineer, rather than just focusing focusing on the quality, you mentioned things like automation and, and you know, triggering, uh, triggering tests and, uh, you know, being kind of the foundation of that. What's for you has kind of been the biggest part of that learning journey, you know, like we, we think about DevOps processes and a lot of us that operate in the space, you know, we think about, you know, automatically running your tests when, um, you move features to a new environment is something that's just, you, of course you should do that. Um, you know, like what was kind of your approach as you started to look at some of these automated things, um, in a DevOps process, what were kind of like the key aha moments for you as you went from, I want to automate these kind of tests to thinking about what we might otherwise be able to automate or what parts of the process could be changed to really be successful. Yeah. I'd say a lot of that comes from just listening to what problems people are facing on the team or what uh, points of friction people are facing, whether it's the, the testers or developers or designers. Um, just listening for, especially if you're in a, on a scrum team, you're doing scrum, uh, especially at like retrospectives. That's what I found to be one of the most valuable places to get that kind of information. Um, almost undoubtedly, they'll begin to hear things, especially a team that's been working for maybe a few months at least, if not a few years on a product. They're going to be saying things like, oh, this one process, it's really slowing us down. Um, it might be reviews are slowing us down. They're taking a long time. Or it might be that um, merge conflicts, like we're merging code and we keep running into conflicting with other people's changes in that code, um, and we can't merge them both in together, and um, that's that's slowing us down. And so, listening for where that frustration is happening between different team members, that's usually the points of most value, I think, for somebody with DevOps to come in and to improve that situation. Um, so just some examples of what that might look like, for example, like with the merge conflict, it might be trying to make sure that back merges are happening more regularly or automatically even, so that somebody's dev branch has all these small changes coming in automatically. And so that when they get to a merge conflict, which those are inevitably gonna happen, it's at least as small as possible. It's just about some very specific changes, which should ideally be more recent and more familiar to whoever's developing on it. Um, or it could be, I mentioned, um, if reviews are taking a long time, maybe it's looking for ways to speed them up by encouraging smaller changes, or maybe it's even automating a lot of the test process so that if reviews are finding just like these simple tests are failing, maybe we can notify the developers earlier so a review doesn't need to happen yet, it's not ready. Um, so looking for those points on the, on the testing side, of course, it could be just running a lot more regression tests, um, if possible earlier on. So on the QA team, then I need to run as many long, um, repetitive tests that is really just take eating up their time rather than them, like focusing on some of those more creative situations I talked about. Um, mm -hmm. so yes, just listening to the team for the most part, 
um, and finding ways uh, where you can support. Um, so I'd say specifically on the Salesforce side of things, beyond some of the ones I just mentioned, um, I found that metadata manipulation and being uh, helping a team get better about how changes are being deployed, either to scratch orgs, if they're an ISV and doing scratch org development, or if they're a customer and using sandboxes. Um, there's often just some challenges around metadata being deployed. Maybe it's overwriting changes you don't want it to. Maybe it's not deploying correctly. Maybe it's not deploying automatically. Um, I found there's like a lot of value for somebody with a DevOps mindset to come in and say, hey, we've got this branching structure, we've got this org structure, how can we automate it so that when you make a change here, it's getting deployed properly um, and in a way that's not slowing you down and it's a way that's just helping you do your job. Howdy folks, it's me interrupting this episode of DevOps Diaries to remind you all that Gearset proudly sponsors the DevOps Diaries podcast. Gearset is the all-in-one Salesforce DevOps platform for all of your release management, deployment automation, and Salesforce backup and disaster recovery needs. If you would like more information, head over to gearset.com where you can find out more and read a ton of amazing customer stories. Back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah, that brings me really nicely onto, onto one of my points. So you've got experience in, in a, of a couple of what I would say are different flavors of DevOps. So um, you talked about ISVs, you might be doing uh, ISV like kind of stuff, package development and uh, customers that have your typical typical sandbox, sandbox to sandbox uh, style deployments or, and associated branching strategies if, if they have them. Um, what are what are kind of some of the key differences between those flavors and what what are kind of the in your minds the things that are applicable to both and the things that are separate or the real key areas of consideration that need to be different for those environments something that comes up a lot um working at gearset and the isbs that we work with as well as uh, as well as the end end user customers that we work with, I'd be really interested to hear your take on, on those kind of differences and explain why they're different. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think you're already beginning to touch on it, but I'd say one of the big differences, and I will caveat that my personal bread and butter and expertise is especially on the ISV side. Um, as I mentioned, that's where uh, I've worked the most, but I've definitely done. I've worked some with sandboxes and um, some other tools out there. I think one of the big differences today is just the number and the maturity of tools on the customer versus partner side. Um, definitely on the customer side, like Gearset, like Salesforce DevOps Center, um, and many other big tools out there, there is this marketplace. Um, and this emphasis on some pretty mature point-and-click tool. Um, on the ISV side, that's less so. Um, there are some great ones. Chemo CI is one of my favorites, an open-source tool um, that was actually built at Salesforce. Um, and then there's some other newer ones coming out, like Kute, um, which is a European company. And so there are some that are coming up um, some of them I think are really capable like Chemo CI, but they, they're not going to have like a full company supporting it in the same way with a nice UI um, and this kind of like 
certification process, things like that. That's one of the big differences. Part of the reason is the customer marketplace is just so much larger compared to the ISV marketplace. Um, and so there's tooling. I think I mentioned earlier, Scratch.org versus Sandboxes. Um, definitely you can develop. Technically, you could, I think, develop with either on either end. But generally speaking, it's much easier for a ISV to work with scratch orgs. Um, and I think one day that'll be the case for customers. But currently today, sandboxes are still um, the easiest way to develop for most just because of the fact that you get um, you have a starting place that's similar to your production org. And it basically comes out of the box with a lot more in it versus scratch yeah. work. And so that's one of the big differences. Once you start getting to, I'd say like the metadata level, um, you start to see a lot more similarities in that if you're manipulating metadata in an org, um, so metadata, just data about the org, usually you get to give it like the settings data. Um, when, you, when it comes to manipulating that data, whether it's a sandbox, whether it's a scratch org, generally speaking, there's a lot of similarities there, whether you're like deploying a profile, it's going to be pretty much the same for sandbox or scratch org. There's some nuances in what kind of APIs you're using and what effect that can have. But big picture, the way you're doing deployments um, could be really similar. I, I was starting to mention um, this connection between branching and environments. That part can also be somewhat similar. Usually you want to set up your branching model and your um, environments, those uh, scratch orgs or sandboxes, you want to set them up at least in kind of like a one-to-one -one manner. Uh, with the scratch orgs, you do have the um, advantage of being able to usually just generate more of those easily on demand, um, which can just be a benefit to developers. And so mm -hmm. that's another consideration is like you have that extra benefit with scratch orgs where with sandboxes, they tend to be a lot more hard to difficult to generate. And so they're going to be more long lived. Um, but big picture, I think the strategies you deploy tend to be the same. Like you're thinking about whatever environments they're using, how to make that, how to make it easier for those developers, um, whether it's moving around the metadata, whether it's like automating tests running in those environments. Um, once you take a layer back um, into the technical side, that's tends to be where you get the differences of how do you actually set this up? Are you having to care about authenticating the orgs or can you just generate them on the fly in the scratch um, situation? Yeah. And you, you touched again on branching and uh, sandbox, sandbox management or environment management if you're, if you're using scratch orgs, orgs as well. Um, what would you say is for any, let's say, let's say you're not, Let's uh, don't like to exclude anybody on the podcast, but if you're not a organization that has 10 to 20 Salesforce users, you know, we're talking, talking slightly larger SM, SMB, um, towards mid market, um, maybe enterprise. What do you think is the, the minimum, the minimum number of, of sandboxes or stages in the development flow for best practice at, at uh, reasonable. If you're a reasonable size, say you're a company, a company of a hundred, hundred Salesforce users, um, and you have a couple of admins, uh, maybe, maybe a developer, etc. How many stages in your development cycle do you think there should be in terms of, in terms of sandboxes to make sure that everything is happening correctly? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say minimum. It all depends on how you <laughs> set things up, but it all depends. That's it, it, yeah, <laughs> but it's it's hard to imagine having a good setup and not at minimum having um, a UAT sandbox or basically a sandbox that hopefully is a full sandbox or at least a partial sandbox before you're getting to production. And this is kind of like a final closest to production staging area where you can do testing in. Um, so that's, I would say at a minimum. Um, and then beyond that, I, I usually see in a lot of organizations, they might have kind of a series of sandboxes below that, just depending on the number of projects they're working on. And so they might have like a group of external consultants, they have their own sandbox. Um, and then they might have their internal team working on just maybe just service cloud and they have other clouds that they use, but they're just working on this one piece. Um, and then they're promoting changes um, up into that UAT. Um, it's probably not even a terrible idea to have like another environment between those two, because I think your, your partial or full sandbox, you might want to kind of have some extra protection around it because it might be it tends to be a lot more difficult to refresh it, a lot more expensive time-wise and effort-wise if it does have some issues in it. And so you might even have another in-between. Um, so right there, I think it's not unreasonable to think of having two and then plus one per project. And then from there, I think it's also common to have maybe even additional sandboxes for developers. Um, and that depends on... This probably begins to depend on like how mature your DevOps process is because basically the more sandboxes you're going to have, the more complexity you're going to have in terms of needing to move that metadata, move those changes around. So if you mm -hmm. have a, if you're using like a, a great tool to help you move that around and you have your processes pretty honed in, it's hopefully not that much extra effort to give maybe each team their own sandbox, if not each developer their own sandbox and then to be able to promote those changes, especially if you have them tied up with that branching model and version control so that that becomes a source of truth and then you can just move the changes around version control and they tie into sandboxes. Um, but if you don't have that all set up, it's probably still advantageous to have fewer sandboxes just so you're not spending a whole lot of time um, really, folk, uh, I'd say wasting your time kind of like trying to figure out where the changes are and move them around and yeah. forget what's going on there. Um, but the issue right there so much isn't like the number of sandboxes as much as it is not having that, I think, development process, not using version control, your source of, source of truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd say one of those things that comes up quite a lot is the drift between sandboxes, like sandbox drift, it becomes like quite a big issue, especially the larger an organization is and the number of sandboxes, you know, when was this last refreshed or like how close actually is that to is that to production or the, the most recent recent code and that's where the final version control really underpins all of that um in terms of it being able to to refresh and pre prevent that drift drift for sure um that that in and of itself is, is obviously a challenge for preventing that drift and making sure sandbox stay up to date is obviously crucially important to having a nice smooth flow to automated deployments when you eventually get there, you know, if there's, there's huge disparities in what happens, you'll either have to start doing some clever stuff like with deltas and all this kind of, kind of stuff to be able to, to continue to move it. 
at that velocity. Um, you know, sandbox, sandbox drift aside, are there any, any of the challenges that you see more often in DevOps processes, um, over anything else, um, in the organizations that you've worked in and the projects that you've worked on? Yeah. There are some challenges. I think just getting your unit tests running, um, which seems like an obvious one, but, um, really running the test that you've got as often as possible. Um, I would call that maybe like a hidden challenge. A lot of organizations might not think it's something that they need to be doing, um, where they, it might not come, you know, top of mind, but often there's like some hidden issues there that, um, already exist. Like if you're not, if you're not running your unit tests often, if you're waiting until it gets promoted, um, especially when you combat compound in something like sandbox drift um then you're you're basically getting easy information easy useful information that you could have early on you're getting it way late in the process unnecessarily which is just costing you more than you need to um and so really thinking about like why not run unit tests every time that a code change comes in if we can um it, again like setting i think this is all presupposing that you have some effort to having those good DevOps processes in. So I can understand why uh -huh. not maybe day one, but assuming you're already going down this path, I'm really thinking about, can we, can we run our tests more often? Why or why not? Um, if they're taking way too long, can we at least run a subset of them? Starting to think about that. Um, very similarly, just thinking about how can we expand unit tests? That's often the cheapest way to get good information. And if we don't, First of all, if we don't have really high code coverage, um, there's a great podcast, by the way, by David Reed about why everybody can have 100% code coverage and why it's not as elusive as you might think. Um, just really thinking about if, like, how can we increase, yes, our code coverage, but really the, just the quality of our unit tests and test things that um, can we mock things, situations today that we maybe at first are thinking that we can't do it, but if we think creatively, are there ways that we can mock this so that we can get the answers in the tests and get all these things, learn these things early on um, so we don't even have to worry as much about learning this information down the line. Um, beyond that, I think, I mean, I know there can be a lot of challenges when it comes to deploying metadata um, to an org, and it's not uncommon to get just really odd errors and frustrating errors. Um, I can definitely relate. There's many times where I've gotten an error. Um, maybe it's even because of a Salesforce major release and it's the error you've never seen before and then you start getting it. Mm. Um, and so I think just keeping up to date and keeping, um, current with, uh, with your de development pro with your deployment process, uh, making sure that you're, if you're dependent on other tools, those can go out of date. Uh, for example, like node, uh, recently had some like old versions deprecated and that could Im impact your whole develop deployment process. Um, this is really where I think you have a DevOps engineer come in and like are watching these different things, um, can be really useful to have that person. Uh, but yeah, just keeping current, um, and like using some of the tools and resources that are out there that even Salesforce provides, for example, I mentioned like a major release. Sometimes those can break your changes. Well, you can actually build uh, preview orgs or pre-release orgs um, 
maybe even up to like a month out before a Salesforce major release. So you can start getting that information early on. It doesn't have to, you don't have to wait to run your unit tests and to even do like um, general like regression testing. You don't have to wait until the day a major release comes out. You could start this weeks before and start uh, fixing any issues that come up. Um, yeah, those are a few of the things that come to mind. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite a, it's, it's been enlightening in, in the last four and a half years that I've worked, um, worked in this, in this space is, uh, how many times folks will get to a production deployment and have like, you know, tests fail and code coverage pre prevent a production release. Um, and the amount, the amount, uh, the amount it does come up, it, like, it seems if you spend enough time in this world, you think that that is like the most obvious thing to do. Like, why would, why would you not be doing it? You kind of almost assume that it's being done as like a de facto, a de facto thing, but that's, um, that's really, really reassuring to hear, hear from you and yourself. But it is something that a lot, a lot of teams or organizations maybe don't think about, maybe think about early enough and is an easy way to, to prevent, uh, prevent issues down the line. I think, um, I was working with, working with a customer. And, uh, dear set, dear set does daily unit testing on, on all of your orgs for you, if, if you wanted to do that. And they said that because it, they had that insight every day to running those tests and seeing what was changing and seeing what might be breaking and allowed them to go back and refactor it, refactor what they needed to refactor and had tests and coverage where it needed to allow the rest of their process to run smoothly. So, you know, that's, that's super resonant and, and definitely tallies with, with what I've seen seen in the ecosystem for sure. Um, if we think about the best, the best things, best resources. So you mentioned, you, you, you mentioned a brief podcast there, um, about unit testing. What are some of the best resources that you've come across for folks that are looking to either, that are either in leadership or management roles or folks that are more interested in doing more of the release management and DevOps engineering style roles, what are the best resources that you found out there that folks can go and learn more from, or where would you advise them to go and go and look, if they want to invest a little bit more heavily in this space. Yeah. So yeah, obviously podcasts like these, <laughs> um, can be really great. And, um, there's another like podcast actually by, uh, Pute, that was another tool I mentioned that's more on the ISV side, or at least I know some of the tooling freshly known there. Um, beyond that though, I, I would actually really recommend looking at some of the existing CI CD tools out there that are not necessarily Salesforce specific. And so for example, GitHub actions, um, is a really great tool that I think everybody could be using, at least if you're already using GitHub repo, but even if you're not, um, just thinking about other ways to um, employ these like basically little pieces of automation um, to make your process smoother. Um, and on yeah. top of that, there are a lot of just great Salesforce repos out there where people have built open source tools that can be used with GitHub Actions um, that can um, simplify the process, uh, make things simpler. Um, I'll do a self plug for my own uh, portfolio. I've <laughs> that's got allowed, some... that's totally allowed. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, maybe it'll be a link in the notes somewhere, but yeah, I've got yeah, we'll a few videos on there. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I got a few videos just on like, um, using things like chemo CI I mentioned earlier. Um, but I've seen some 
to some good YouTube videos out there um, in the Trailblazer community. Uh, for example, there are a few groups. There's a test automation group, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, kind of lends itself to DevOps in a lot of ways. A lot of people thinking about how to automate with Salesforce, automate at least UI tests. And that's basically, I think, where the DevOps piece comes in. Um, there's a Kimo CI group. There's a Salesforce DX group um, in the Trailblazer community. Um, those are some great resources. Um, yeah. Also, there's, I know um, I'm not as involved here, but there is a Discord community. And I'm trying to think the SFDX, or sorry, SFXD um, is yeah. a Discord community. I know that's a really active one. And I've seen um, a lot of people in the, just in the DevOps space asking these questions, posting in there. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I love, um, I love the, I love the Discord. I don't spend a lot of time in it. Um, as, as much, as much time in, in it as I used to, but that, that is a super great space. Um, I feel a lot of great conversation in there for sure. So, um, that gets an extra plug for plug from me, um, me as well. Um, what, as we kind of, kind of look to, look to wrap up and look, look to the, look to the future a little bit, where did you, where do you think DevOps is, is heading? in the ecosystem. What kind of are some of your predictions that we might see through 2024, 2025? Um, and what, or what would you like to see either vendors focus on in the ecosystem or Salesforce in the focus themselves on, uh, to support people in the mission of faster, more efficient, less, less turbulent deployments. Yeah. Yeah. I. Selfishly, we'll say, I hope it's on hiring more Salesforce DevOps engineers. <laughs> um, but specifically, I, I guess what I've seen a lot of is an appetite from leaders to not just um, take this idea that things are messy and this is the way it has to be. Um, I've seen that, especially from those who are maybe like new to the Salesforce space, a leader who hasn't been in Salesforce, but then just takes on, let's say leadership of several Salesforce teams. And all of a sudden they see, oh, this is just frustrating. And this is just the way Salesforce is. Um, unfortunately, especially outside the Salesforce community, I think sometimes it has that reputation of Salesforce doesn't, can't really do DevOps the same way that other teams can do it. Um, and I think there is some truth to the fact that Salesforce as a platform is just different. The fact that it is cloud-based, and that you can't really develop locally in the same way you can. And that's both, um, it can make it more difficult, but there's a lot of advantages as well. Um, and I mm -hmm. think with the addition of scratch orgs and SFDX and now all these open source tools, I think Salesforce and the community is kind of like taking on this responsibility of let's modernize in a lot of ways, but let's do it in a way that still respects like the value of being always being able to develop in the cloud and always in a sense being able to develop in a, a real environment to a certain degree and the fact that it's at least yeah. on the internet and something that you actually have to think about limits even when you're developing um in and so i think there's been this reputation um of it being more difficult but i think finally leaders are coming around to part of the reason is we just haven't invested properly um in and solving this issue. And yes, it does take some learning. It does take some education and effort, 
but we don't have to like sit with the status quo of it's messy um, just because it is. Um, there actually are tools. There are actually people, experts out there that can help us with this. And especially when we're in a situation where we have two, three, four scrum teams um, all working on Salesforce, but we don't have somebody who's like thinking about from a DevOps perspective, all the, how these teams work and adding value here, we're actually like missing out on a lot of opportunity. It's not just the way it has to be. It's we can improve this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree. And I, th I think that is one of the, one of the, the, the things that we've had to say, had to be, have to, had to have been quite conscious on, especially spending as much time as I do in the system and a lot of time talking about DevOps itself is, is getting, getting that engagement from leadership and, you know, the, the, that it's always been done this way mindset is, is a killer sometimes, you know, um, like really just if I kill something dead, if the vision isn't there to, to move beyond, move beyond that. So, so yes, I think, um, it's fantastic to have other folks in the ecosystem and folks like yourself, Julian, in the ecosystem that are advocating for that and, uh, that do realize that there is a parent way and have the plethora of experience that you do in solving these challenges, um, to, to help visualize that for sure. Um, Julian, thank you so much for your time and coming on to the DevOps Diaries podcast. Um, I think you've given the listeners a lot of food for thought and also quite a bit of enlightenment into the specifics of what DevOps engineers do and how those that are more interested in it can, can develop themselves in that area, uh, in that space. So I really value your time. Is there any closing comments or anything else that you'd like to say to the listeners, uh, before I let you go here? Yeah, no, just thank you so much for having me. Um, I am just interested in continued conversations with anybody who wants to chat about DevOps, either they're thinking about a career transition or they just have questions about their organization. Um, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit and all the other social platforms. I actually just bought julian.social, the domain. So maybe I'll have to redirect up. <laughs> Uh, pretty soon. And so if you want to come find me there, but at the very least, if you look for me, Julian Joseph on LinkedIn, always happy to have a conversation. Um, I love to just chat, you know, it doesn't have to even be anything business related, just like talking about the subject, hearing where people are at. Um, yeah, especially learning some of the skills and making a career transition that always excites me too. And so yeah, just love to, to get this kind of knowledge out there and hear where other people are at. Perfect. Julian, thank you so much. The links to Julian's profiles are in the description for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much, listeners, for, for tuning in and thank you for making it to this stage. If you have made it to this stage and you've enjoyed the podcast, then be sure to hit the like and subscribe button on whatever platform that you're listening on. And I've been your host, Jack McCurdy, and I will catch you another time on the Delft Stars podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>